following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Paul Steinberg, author of A Salamander's Tale, My Story of Regeneration, Surviving 30 Years with Prostate Cancer. Paul Steinberg, MD, is one of the longest survivors of metastatic prostate cancer in history. Uh, he was the director of the Georgetown University Counseling and Psychiatric Service for many years, and he's now in private practice in Washington, D.C., a frequent contributor to the Washington Post and the New York Times. Well, what happens, and if you are a 35-year-old male, and you're told you have an aggressive form of prostate cancer, and in order to stay alive, you must have surgical castration by the time you're 40. If you're Paul Steinberg, married, lusty, a successful and beloved physician and psychiatrist, your life dissolves into a mystery of survival, and you become the detective in charge of solving your most important case, keeping yourself alive. And... Paul, welcome to the show. This is what we're going to be talking about for the next half hour, your book and how you kept yourself alive, diagnosed, what, 35 years old, very rare, I assume. Uh, it's not as rare as people think. I've encountered a number of people who are now in their uh, early 30s, even late 20s, who are diagnosed. It's relatively rare and uh, much more common in 50 and 60 and 70 year olds. But uh, it does happen. And it does happen. It did happen with me at the age of uh, 35, 36. Uh, by the time I was actually diagnosed, I was 36 and uh, getting uh, a radical prostatectomy, meaning a removal of the prostate. And at that time, the uh, a uh, uh, surgeon said, I, well, we got it all. I loved their optimism, and it gave me a uh, reprieve for about four or five years uh, until the prostate-specific antigen came along, the PSA, and we discovered that uh, my PSA was rising. It should be zero. And then at that time, that's when everybody, a uh, huge chorus of people saying, you've got to have surgical permanent castration uh, immediately or else you're going to die uh, very prematurely. Of course, but I want to uh, backtrack a little, Paul, because... Because, you know, you're diagnosed, you're 35 years old, and, I, you know, as you say in your book, I mean, you're at the height of your uh, sexuality, and you do, let's talk about sex and lust and your penis and all of those things right. that we don't talk about. Uh, you know, and uh, fertility. I mean, fertility was crucial as well. We had, uh, my wife and I had two young daughters uh, who were four and six years old. We were looking to have a third, and something seemed to be going awry. It might have been the prostate cancer, but uh, once you have the prostate removed, removed, then you lose uh, the capacity to produce sperm, and uh, so even fertility is out the window. Uh, But uh, as you say, uh, love, lust, uh, uh, all the aspects of uh, being human are are suddenly uh, uh, being compromised in a really profound way. So what was your 
feeling when you were told that you had prostate cancer? I mean, had you had symptoms? Were you surprised? Uh, was it totally unexpected? I mean, it, it's like being, it would seem to me, being hit over the head with this kind of a diagnosis at age 35. Well, here's the thing, uh, and this is not uncommon, as you probably know from speaking to friends and family who've dealt with any kind of blow, any kind of cancer in particular. Uh, so I had gone uh, to my internist for my yearly physical, and he said, you know, on rectal exam, your prostate seems harder than usual, a bit malformed. I think you, we should get you to a urologist. And I went to uh, the chief of urology at a major uh, teaching hospital here in Washington, and his comment immediately was, well, we at least know it's not prostate cancer because you're too young for that. Uh, he was completely wrong, uh, but it gave me uh, some assurance, well, maybe I don't have to deal with this now. He claimed maybe it could be a tuberculous uh, prostate state, even though I hadn't had any experience with tuberculosis, uh, no evidence of it, but uh, I just sort of relaxed about it in an inappropriate way, and uh, only uh, later when I uh, managed to hit a tennis ball uh, into a fence when I had a really bad backhand uh, uh, shot, uh, and the uh, ball hit the uh, hit my testicles, uh, and uh, the pain was enormous, but I had had that experience before. I was a baseball player, a catcher in baseball had had some uh, uh, hits uh, in, in the groin and uh, usually went away. A little bruise uh, uh, went away within a day. This time, the pain just continued and continued and continued. I was desperate at that point. Went up to New York City to Columbia Presbyterian. They took one look at me uh, with an ultrasound and said, you ain't going anywhere. Uh, this is prostate cancer until proven otherwise. And they were absolutely right. And their approach was absolutely correct as well. Yeah. Okay, so they diagnosed the cancer, uh, and this was what, in 19, the early, the middle 80s? 80, I forgot, it's like 83, uh, 1984, 84? exactly. Yeah. Uh, George Orwell's time. Uh, <laughs> yes, it was, a, it was a bad time all the way around. 1984, you, okay, you're in your 30s. Uh, you, you're, I keep repeating the same thing because uh, I was 35 years old. Um, you said their diagnosis was correct, and then the treatment yeah. specifically we, we, was, yeah. We, uh, they did a, a radical prostatectomy, meaning a removal of the prostate, uh, which also removes the capacity to produce sperm. Uh, Can you have an uh, erection? And, uh, I mean, what about the, your sex life? Pardon? Uh, well, uh, it, it was coming back. It was really going pretty well. I'm reading, uh, uh, looking at uh, movies with my wife, uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I'm feeling like a, a teenager again. But uh, the problem was that the uh, margins of the prostate were unclear when they removed it, meaning that uh, there were some cells that seemed to have gone beyond the capsule of the prostate. Uh, and so they recommended, in terms of hedging their bets, and hedging of the bets for me uh, to get uh, a radiation to the prostate bed, to the pelvic area, to remove any cells that might be there. Uh, and that uh, 
uh, we assumed, in fact, they told me that's going to be the death of your pelvis. Uh, there's a hundred percent chance that you will not be uh, uh, much of a sexual being, that you'll be able to get erections. Uh, somehow I found a way. Uh, as you say, it's a, uh, more than a, a bit of a detective story in terms of figuring out uh, how to recover sexually uh, from a devastating blow like that, the loss of the prostate, but also the uh, uh, radiation to the prostate bed. Well, how did you do that? I mean, obviously, and and I think one of the things in the book, you kind of, you know, you have doctors who are obviously concerned with your health and and treating you and and getting you cancer-free, but they don't necessarily address the, I'll call them from a social work perspective, the psychosocial issues, the sexual issues that, you know, you say your pelvis is dead. I don't know if that was one of the chapters, but... um, you know, like, it's not just curing the cancer, but it's a whole new way of life for you. And how do you see, you know, in terms of yourself as a as a man and your relationship with your wife, and um, how do you deal with all of that? Yeah, it was, uh, it was extremely difficult, as you can imagine, but uh, I figured there's got to be a way to bring back uh, uh, my sexual health. And uh, as I note in the book, uh, and the, from the title of the book, the salamander is my inspiration. A salamander is this incredible creature that can uh, uh, regenerate its tail, its limbs, uh, a good part of its heart, its retina. Uh, it can sit under a log for months and months uh, while uh, these, after there's been an injury or a loss of a limb or a loss of a tail, it can re- regenerate, uh, create steps stem cells, just as we can, these embryonic stem cells, uh, that then get into an electrical gradient that allows the stem cells to become muscle tissue, vascular tissue, uh, nerve cells, uh, and uh, so it uh, specifically becomes what it used to be. Uh, now, we don't necessarily have that capacity. We can regenerate bone, we can gen- regenerate skin, but not much else. Uh, we're, we're warm-blooded, they're cold-blooded. That's why they can uh, uh, sit under a log for eight months. If we're warm-blooded, uh, we're going to get bacteria pretty quickly uh, and uh, uh, pretty quickly die. Uh, we can't sit under a log for eight months. But uh, uh, I was able to discover that uh, the Russians were dealing with uh, the effects of radiation uh, in a number of uh, situations uh, in the Ural Mountains back in the 1950s. Uh, they had had a major, major radiation disaster uh, uh, acres and acres, uh, square miles of uh, land, farmland, and uh, forest were destroyed. Right around the time I went through radiation back in early 1985, a few months after the original surgery, uh, they had had a major problem at the Rus- Russian-Polish border with a radiation disaster. So they were desperate to find some antidotes, some solutions for it, and uh, they discovered that hyperbaric oxygen helps. Uh, and so... Uh, I called this uh, uh, hyperbaric oxygen uh, expert in Mount Vernon, Virginia. They were mostly dealing with uh, the bends, people coming up from uh, the Caribbean with major problems from a dive, uh, people with carbon monoxide poisoning from a suicide attempt. And I told this guy, we've got to try this uh, uh, hyperbaric oxygen. He, he was really interested at that time. Again, this is uh, 1985, uh, before the onset of managed care. Uh, 
Uh, if a doctor said, let's do hyperbaric oxygen, uh, the insurance companies went along at that time. And it actually helped. Uh, now, it helped only temporarily for a few weeks at a time, and we kept trying it, but it gave me a sense that, hey, this can really improve. Because uh, what radiation does, uh, Catherine, is that it... Um, uh, it uh, uh, it creates problems with uh, hydrogen and oxygen, which normally makes water H two O. But in this case, uh, radiation creates H O two, H three O two, H two O two hydrogen peroxide, all sorts of weird uh, combinations of hydrogen and oxygen, and destroys uh, cells and protoplasm. So if you put in pressurized oxygen, it can actually uh, help uh, get uh, water back. In place and H uh, hydrogen and oxygen working out uh, really nicely. So that right, was so one uh, thing that I went to, and then uh, metaphorically went to China, figuratively to China, to look at acupuncture. Because uh, uh, acupuncture is one of the few ways that we have of creating uh, this electrical gradient that salamanders have. It's not as powerful as what uh, uh, salamanders have, but I was able to uh, uh, regenerate uh, the pelvic area. It wasn't dead anymore, and was able to uh, get uh, full sexual function back, which was just astounding to me. Paul, you went and you had obviously transitioned from being a patient to a, a, being a doctor to a patient, which is part of your transition. But as I'm listening to you, because, you know, uh, memoirs I always find obviously are inspirations to other, can be an inspiration to other people uh, or a guide even, because you sort of took on your own care or you were very proactive. I mean, your physicians aren't telling you to do, to do this, that there, you know, might be some hope if you went to Russia and you may, or, or to China. So, like, what does the ordinary person do? I mean, you're you're a physician, you're a scientist, you have all this in your background, um, who might find themselves in the same position as you. I think we all need some kind of ombudsman when we're dealing with a major blow in life, uh, losses, any kind of uh, uh, struggle or tragedy. and I uh, certainly found it uh, essential uh, as part of this uh, uh, effort to recover to, uh, uh, as a psychiatrist myself, to go to a, a, psych- a psychiatrist I knew to be able to talk these things through and to figure out what, what is my strategy? How am I going to handle this? Uh, what are some uh, ways that I uh, can uh, go about this uh, without uh, uh, going off in the wrong d- uh, direction, half-cocked? Uh, Uh, And if I tried to do this, even as a physician, if I tried to do this myself, uh, I mean, two heads are better than one, five heads are better than one. uh, I found it really valuable to have people that I could talk to. So you have to seek out other people, obviously. And I guess one of the things that after reading your book, it's sort of like you, I mean, you listen to your physician and or physicians, but you can't necessarily take that as God's word. Uh, you ne- really need to explore your choices or opportunities. At least that's what I took away from your book. And so why that you are still here 30 years later, because um, you know, I want to kind of fast forward a little bit because then you really, your, your cancer was an ongoing condition that you had to, you have dealt with for the past 30 years. It didn't just go away. You had treatment and you were cured. 
So, right. Yeah. That's exactly right, Catherine. And, and the real blow, the major blow, was in 1989 when we did have the uh, prostate-specific antigen available, uh, the PSA. Uh, it hadn't been available in 1984-85 when I was first diagnosed. And my surgeon up at Columbia Presbyterian in New York called me and said, your PSA is 2.1. It should be zero. The prostate has been removed. Uh, all the cancer cells have been also uh, destroyed through radiation. It obviously wasn't zero. Uh, nobody knew how to interpret the PSA at that time. And uh, his immediate uh, reaction, again, this is a well-known, uh, urologist, uh, uh, but it was also uh, uh, papered throughout the New England Journal of Medicine, indicating that the only thing I could do was immediate surgical permanent castration. And uh, I said, over my dead body, uh, we got to figure out something else. Uh, I took some time off from work. I was at Georgetown University at that time, as you mentioned, and uh, took a couple of weeks off from work. What do I do? How do I handle this? I spend time with friends, with my wife, uh, uh, and one of my friends said, listen, you've spent uh, the last five years just trying to see the uh, best people, uh, find the best answers, do this great detective story. This is not a time to, to uh, stop now. Uh, so I uh, called uh, a fellow named Gerald Murphy, who had helped develop the PSA in uh, Buffalo, New York. He had now moved to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta. Uh, somehow I was able to reach him within a matter of minutes, told him the story. I was frantic. I uh, said, listen, my PSA is 2.1, uh, and uh, everybody's telling me I need to have a surgical castration. And I hear laughter chuckling over the phone. And I th think, geez, this guy must be a jerk. He explains to me that uh, a PSA of 2.1, we now know that uh, all that means is that I have some microscopic cells, uh, uh, not much. I uh, said, go back to work. Go back and help people. Uh, you don't need any help right now. Uh, in another couple of years, your PSA may go up to 6, 8, 10. At that point, you're going to need to do something. But hopefully we're going to find some other ways of responding to this uh, that aren't available now. We'll come up with new inventions, new discoveries, new ideas. And uh, that was exactly right. And you just try to stay alive as long as you can and uh, uh, hope that uh, there will be some remarkable new discoveries. So you, that's exactly what you did, and then you, you. So then, what happened? How many years do we have after that that you're sort of that you don't obviously you're not um, going being castrated as the doctor recommended, but you are hum, you. Well, my PSA continues to rise, yeah. not surprisingly, and uh -huh. we've got to figure out something. Uh, I, uh, here's where luck plays a crucial role. I uh, got a call from uh, uh, my physician up at Columbia Presbyterian. He said, we're experimenting with monoclonal antibodies, and uh, uh, we'd like you to come up here, and it might be able to tell us. Uh, where the prostate cancer may be, because it could be anywhere. Uh, we doubt that it's in the uh, pelvic area at this point, but it may have escaped other places. Now, monoclonal antibodies have become very, very helpful now, uh, but they were very primitive back in uh, 1989, 1990. But I did go up there, and uh, uh, they do the study, 
and within a few hours they uh, grab me and say, uh, we found uh, lymph nodes along your carotid artery that have uh, uh, prostate cancer in them. Well, it turns out uh, prostate cancer doesn't go to those particular lymph nodes. But they said, we have a vascular surgeon waiting here. He's going to uh, do uh, 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 a dissection of the carotid artery, which is a pretty dangerous thing. You cut it and you're dead or you have a major stroke. Uh, I called my internist. This is, again, where luck plays a crucial role. And he said, uh, get the hell out of there before they kill you. Uh, and that was great advice. Uh, but while I was there, while I was in New York, I went over to Sloan Kettering and uh, just picked uh, the brain of one of the uh, uh, experts in uh, prostate oncology and told them, what, what are the ways that we can deal with uh, this prostate cancer other than castration? He mentioned a new uh, medication that was coming out that's now used very commonly. Uh, but he also said there's a fellow in Vancouver, British Columbia, who uh, recognizes that less castration is more, and more castration turns out to be less in terms of your health, uh, and that uh, through chemistry you can get an intermittent castration for about six months at a time, uh, and, uh, and then be off treatment for about a year and a half, two years, and be back to your normal uh, sexual self. But he said, uh, you are not appropriate for it. Uh, I saw your study at uh, Columbia Presbyterian. I know all those people there. They found some prostate cancer. I think you need permanent castration. Well, I called this fellow, Nicholas Bukowski, in Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, that's the Siberia of the Americas. Nobody believed what Nicholas uh, was saying. Uh, I, I, I called him, and he said, come on up here to uh, Vancouver. You'd be a, a perfect candidate for this approach and in fact uh, that's how I've lived the last uh, uh, 25 years since the uh, uh, metastatic disease became apparent uh, and so I have six to eight months on treatment where I am truly chemically castrated uh, but then I have a year and a half, two years where I'm back to my normal self. And it's, it's a, a way of fooling the cancer cells. I keep them alive. They get testosterone, which fuels their growth. But I get testosterone, and I'm back to my being a sexual being. And I become vigilant, looking for any cancers. And we found some in the lungs, uh, in uh, bone uh, tissue over the years, but we've been able to radiate it. But the main thing is I've left the cancer, cell, uh, cancer cells to be hormone-sensitive and also radiation-sensitive. So it's allowed me to create a, a, a chronic disease from something that would be otherwise very aggressive and deadly. Well, Paul, uh, and we're going to end on uh, on that uh, note, but a salamander's tail, um, I want to make sure that our listeners also know where they, well, they can buy the book at uh, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. Is there a website that we can go to uh, to find out more about what you're doing? Sure, my experience, yeah. uh, paulsteinbergmd.com, paulsteinbergmd.com. One reviewer has called the book uh, at once raw, funny, profane, and uplifting, which I think is, uh, Catherine, a great description of the book, but also a really good description of me as well. <laughs> 
what a story. It's a good story with a good ending. Well, it hasn't ended yet, but um, right. it, yeah. And Great I think it resonates with anybody who's gone through any significant blow, any significant yes. uh, struggle in life. So it's not just prostate cancer. It's how do you uh, make a detective story work to uh, really create uh, good health and a good life. Exactly. Uh, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Joining me this morning is author and human rights activist Rupert Isaacson. We're going to be talking about his new book, The Long Ride Home, The Extraordinary Journey of Healing That Changed a Child's Life. Uh, The question is, would you go to the ends of the earth to help your child? Most of us would say yes, or all of us would say yes. So writer Rupert Isaacson and his wife, Christine, who is a psychologist, traveled to Mongolia, South Africa, and Australia to seek solutions for their autistic son, Rowan. And uh, the book is about their journey, the extraordinary journey of healing that changed their son's life. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Rupert. Thank you for having me. That's quite a story. Okay. Your son was diagnosed with autism, and I, as I understand it, a very, he is on, on the spectrum of severe Autism. He was, um, yeah. He was quite severe when he was diagnosed. And, and so when he was diagnosed, how old was he when he was diagnosed? He was two and a half. Two and a half. 
two and a half. Was that a surprise to you and your wife? As I said, she was she's a psychologist. She, well, she, yeah, she's a professor of developmental psychology at University of Texas. We live in Austin, and so because of that, she could pick up the fact that he was missing certain milestones um, and that his behaviours were sort of way off what they should be quite early. Yep. Um, so I, maybe we got to it a little earlier than we might have done otherwise, but uh, it was still a shock. Yeah. Well, okay, you, getting to it early, um, early diagnosis, I think, obviously is important. But yeah. what were some of the, you know, you know, say your wife is a developmental psychologist, a professor of de- developmental psychology. Um, just for our audience, what are some of the symptoms of autism? The, th- the things to look yeah. out for um, in, a, in a toddler, a young toddler, are, are they pointing? Um, if they're not pointing by about 18 months, it's a pretty good indicator um, that the perspective-taking areas of the brain, um, which are always impaired in autism, are not kicking in. Um, uh, obviously, speech, um, is, is it there? Did they have words? Did they lose them? And then are they playing appropriately? Do they line up their toys or do they actually play with their toys? Do they line up their toys in patterns? That's usually a fairly good sign. And then will they play with other kids, or is it what they call parallel play, where they just play, but there's another kid playing next to them and they don't interact? Those, those are pretty good indicators. And what about behavior, tantrums, things like that? The tantrums, I mean, there, there will be autism families listening to this show, and you all know, I'm addressing you directly, what an autism <laughs> tantrum is, and it's, it's different, very, very different to a normal tantrum because it doesn't come from a frustration um, or I can't have it thing. It's um, neurological. And more is known about this now, luckily, than was known when we were first dealing with this because so much testimony has come in from adult autists that have gone on to write memoirs and consult with scientists that what's happening is that a lot of them have an overdeveloped um, uh, no, um, amygdala, which is the part of the brain that governs your fight, flight, and freeze response. And that this is producing a lot of cortisol, a lot of anxiety, a lot of um, stress hormone. That They get caught in a vicious cycle between that and a nervous system, which sometimes gives misinformation to the brain through bad sensory triggers. And those bad sensory triggers are usually man-made. Um, it's usually things like fluorescent strip lights, industrial noise, echo, industrial smells, that sort of thing. And that can really trigger the nervous system to give wrong information to the brain um, so the kid can feel that that light is flickering like a strobe or that the, the wind suddenly feels like fire um, and their clothes suddenly feel like they weigh 10 tons. These are very normal symptoms. They can't express this. They panic. That triggers the amygdala, and they get caught in this vicious cycle, and that's what an autism tantrum is. It's a neurological firestorm going through their body, and that's why they often self-harm, and that's why you can't console them. You just have to sort of try and help them not harm themselves until that juggernaut of sensory misinformation has shuddered to a halt, and they, they click back to normal. All right, so now, obviously, you, I mean, this is happening to you and your family and you and your wife, and then what do you do? I mean, you, you took, you know, you, as described in the book, um, an extraordinary journey. Well, we did take an extraordinary people, yeah. set of journeys. Um, we didn't start that way. We started as normal people do, um, following the advice of, you know, everybody, all the professionals who were coming at autism generally from a very negative point of view. They were all saying, oh, you know, he can't do this, he can't do that, he'll never do this, he'll never do that, you know, blah, blah, blah. So that's 
pretty devastating, you know, when you're a young, when you're a parent. And then um, we were trying the behavioral therapies. We were trying some um, small biomedical stuff. and None of it was really working, I have to say. Um, but what did work was um, Rowan liked to be outside. He just flat out tantrumed less when he was on the woodland trails behind our house uh, or at the local park. Um, but if he was inside, he would, you know, we, obviously we have these man-made triggers. He would, uh, he would tantrum a lot more. So I'm an observant guy because I'm a journalist um, and I'm a writer and so on. So it's my job to observe. So I observed that he just did better outside. So I spent a lot of time with him on the trails behind the house. And one day, instead of going to the right on the path as normal, he went left through the undergrowth into my neighbor's horse pasture where all of his horses were grazing and threw himself under the hooves of um, a, a mare called Betsy. And I thought he was going to get killed. I, I, I am actually a professional horse trainer. Um, it's one of the hats that I wear. But I had stopped riding because I thought that my son wasn't safe around horses. So I'm creeping through the undergrowth. I'm going to grab him, pull him back through the fence. But instead, something rather wonderful and something extraordinary actually happens. Um, Betsy, this, this alpha mare of the herd, this boss mare of the herd, bends her head and begins to lick and chew and half close the eye, which is a submission slash acceptance gesture, not dissimilar to a dog showing its belly. It's something a horse trainer recognizes. There are techniques for getting a horse to do this, but I'd never seen a horse spontaneously offer this before. It was very clear that there was some direct thing going between them. And then he wanted to go back and back to her, so I just followed. And that's where the whole amazing journeys began. All right, so obviously you're recognizing this, I guess, relationship between the horse and your son. Um, and, and, and then what happened after that? Because uh, Our lives took an interesting... Yeah. Cool. What, what happened was, yeah. you know, he couldn't he couldn't speak really. So he, but he could only show me kinetically with his body what he wanted to do. So I would follow him back to Betsy every day. She was a quiet horse. I knew that, and he w- would stand next to her, jumping with his hands up, indicating he wanted to get up. So I would lay him on her back with my hand on him for safety, while she grazed. And all of his stimming, um, the self stimulatory activity, the rocking, the flapping, the chanting, the repetitive noises would just stop. And I had this different kid. I then started riding with him in the same saddle with me, a big Western saddle. And on the first day that I was riding, um, we're riding down towards the pond, a, a pond. And he sees this big blue heron get up and flap away. And he says, heron. I didn't know any of that word. I didn't know that was in there. I didn't know. And I thought, gosh, he's, he's talking. This is amazing. And I started to give him choices. He would take them. Um, faster, slower, this way, that way. And suddenly, this was ironically the same week that his speech therapist had given up on him. The door to my son's mind had opened a crack and we went through and we began to literally live in the saddle together for about two to three years. And not just his language came that way, but his literacy, I would paint letters on trees and he loved the Lion King, so I would sing all the Lion King songs as we were riding, and there'd be an S on one tree, an I on another, round the corner to an M, a B, an A, and there'd be a little Simba toy waiting for him, and he learned to read. Um, and the same with maths. Um, I would line up my friends and family, and one guy had a beard, so we'd take him out, and we'd make it funny. We'd do it in an evil Godzilla voice with farts and bump him away with the horse's nose, and then add him back, and then divide 
the group of four into two, two groups of two, round them up and melt it. And he got his basic numeracy, and I really had something. However, this is all very sort of rational. There was an irrational side as well, which was that, as you said in the, in the intro, I'm also a human rights activist. And where I do my human rights work is in Africa, because that's where my family is from. I had to bring a delegation of hunter-gatherers, Bushmen hunter-gatherers from the Kalahari and Botswana to the United Nations and the U.S. State Department in the same year that Rowan was diagnosed and he met Betsy. Some of the guys on that delegation were trained healers or shamans in their own culture. They met Rowan. They offered to, quote-unquote, work on him, which is really just prayer and going to trance and putting the hands on. And I'd seen them doing this for years and years, and I'd seen people getting sick and appearing to get better this way. But I didn't really hold out any particular hope. I just said, sure, why not? The worst thing that can happen is nothing. And to my amazement, um, he really did lose some of his more obsessive symptoms while he was with them. So I couldn't help but wonder, okay, radical and positive reaction to the horse, radical and positive reaction to this type of healing, middling to no reactions to all the orthodox therapies we're doing, and I could bore everyone for three hours about everything that we did, but we did them. Um, And so where combines these two things? Where does the horse come from? Equus cabalus, as we know, it's Mongolia. Strong system of shamanism there, shaman, the word means he who knows. It's a South Siberian word from that area. Gut feeling, got to go. And that's where things really got crazy. All right, that's where you started. But how, you know, I mean, that yours obviously is a unique tale. And I always kind of want to relate it to others, let's say parents who are listening to you and, and, mm. and, and have uh, children who are autistic. What can they do? I mean, they can't go usually to Mongolia. No, and they don't need to go to Mongolia, and they don't need to go see shamans. I mean, we, but that was obviously um, personal to us. They also don't need to get on horses. But there are some threads there that everyone can do that work into everyday life. So basically what happened was we went out to Mongolia with a child that was autistic, and we came back with a child that was autistic. But his three key dysfunctions, his incontinence, tantruming, and inability to make friends, he left behind him. We didn't really know why, but that's what happened. But the healer, the last healer that he saw, a guy called Ghost from the reindeer people in in northern Mongolia, said I had to do three more journeys. So we did. We went out to the Bushmen in the Kalahari, the guys I know personally. Um, They worked on him, and this extraordinary mathematical dialogue came up after this. Then we were in the rainforests of northern Australia with a Kuku Yalanji shaman, Aboriginal shaman. And what came directly after that was theory of mind. You know, uh, he started to play pranks on me, which is an extremely advanced thing that he sort of hadn't done before. And then finally, on the Navajo Reservation here in America, three days of ceremony there, and what came out of that was proper, real conversation, not the sort of scripted stuff that he had done. But meanwhile, we were still working with all these movements out in nature and homeschooling that way. And 90% of the time, of course, Rowan wasn't on the horse. 90% of the time, he was doing other things. And we were trying to find how we might emulate what seemed to be going on so well with the horse outside. And this is where it becomes universal. What happened is that we realized that we'd fallen into something neurological. Um, 
when I got back from these journeys, I opened a small center doing equine therapy the way we were doing it with Rowan. And I noticed very quickly that there was a universal response, that all the kids pretty much were responding this way. And the kids that didn't want to get on horses, because not all of them did, we could emulate these rocking and balancing, rhythmic rocking and balancing movements that Rowan had reacted so well to with play equipment. On so, Robert, I just want to interrupt. It, it mm. is, so it's the movement, the movement yes, of the exactly. horse, the move, yeah. And there is a I guess it's called the movement kind of method. Movement. Yep. So the particular kind of movement is anything that is a rocking and balancing movement in rhythm, particularly anything that rocks the pelvis, will cause the body to produce lots and lots of the feel-good and communication hormone oxytocin. That is the direct antidote to the cortisol, the stress hormone that I was talking about at the beginning of the interview. So that calms the nervous system down and it makes the child want to communicate because that's what oxytocin does. If you think about what the word autism means, we use it all the time, right? But we very seldom actually think, well, what does this word mean? It's autism, auto. Auto is the Greek word for the self. So autism, selfism, locked within the self. The difficulty is the relationship with the exterior world. Suddenly you're being carried into the exterior world, filled with oxytocin, and then something else happens. Um, the same rocking and balancing movements um, stimulate the cerebellum. And the cerebellum produces a set of cells called Purkinje cells, which sound like weird Pokemon characters. But actually what they are, are the cells within the brain that make the different parts of the brain communicate properly, which is often lacking in kids with autism, which is why you often see a kid that can remember all the uh, football scores for 10 years, but he can't be toilet trained or he has great math skills but terrible social skills. This is, this is normal. Um, once those Purkinje cells are firing through the brain, this begins to even out. It then activates the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is um, the area that deals with reason and emotional regulation. These are the things which we regard as sort of normal brain function. That tells the amygdala, the stress um, center, to switch off, that there is no threat. And then finally, um, the uh, inner ear, the vestibular system, is activated through these movements. Um, and that's balance and attention. And it also causes the brain to produce a protein called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And remember, I'm married to a professor of psych ed educational psychology, developmental psychology, so we had access to lots of neurologists and scientists, and this was their take on what we were doing. And then well, the oxytocin, as you're describing it, any woman who has nursed her babies, myself included, that's what's released when the baby's with the exactly. sucking yeah, of the breast, and you feel that overall feeling of calmness well from the release of, yeah, of the oxytocin. Absolutely. And you want to communicate with your child. Yeah. It's actually the same when you make love. You, you produce a lot of oxytocin when you do that. And, of course, that the oxytocin provides the bond and the desire to emotionally communicate between the two people so that they'll stick around and actually raise that child. We're hardwired for this. It's actually part of what we call the mammalian caregiving system, which is almost as old as the reptilian brain. And so it, the reptilian brain, which is the amygdala, is all about how do you survive, just short-term survival. But the mammalian caregiving system is how do you thrive, um, and this is what we're talking about here. So any of these movements that are basically rocking and balancing while out in nature, away from bad sensory triggers and problem solving, are going to activate the brain in this way. And once we realized this, we thought, well, gosh, anyone can do this anywhere. 
You could do this in your living room. You could do this by, by putting a kid on a swing and feeding information into them that way. You could do it in the swimming pool. You could do it on the trampoline. So we began to, um, to collaborate with about seven different universities worldwide. And we've come up now with a thing called Movement Method, which is this easy to do. You can learn it in about, I don't know, half a day. How it's, there's six steps you need to know. How do you activate the brain for learning? And we trained, we've probably trained about a thousand people around the world now, 13 countries, how to do this. And what about physicians around the world or here in the United States? Right what now. is it's, that? Uh, how, a, you know, the, the, uh, the physicians, um, what, what is their response? Is this something that if your child is diagnosed with autism that we use here, best practices, let's say, here in the United yeah, States? Yeah, it's coming that way. We're sort of moving from the, the hippie margins to the mainstream, um, partly because of all our university affiliations, and about, six, about four or five, actually, studies now have been done on what we do, and more um, are in the offing, um, not just at American universities, but in Germany and Holland and Sweden and other places. Um, so, of course, that gives one some credibility. Yes, um, what most physicians and neurologists um, think that what we're doing is fine. Where we get resistance, oddly enough, is um, within existing therapy techniques, often the behavioral therapists and so on, who sometimes feel threatened by something like this because it's so easy to do, it's so cheap. Instead of a family having to spend tens of thousands of dollars on really expensive therapies, what basically we're saying, because we're autism parents, is, you don't have to do that, guys. You can, you can really do a lot of this at home yourself for free. And then if you choose to engage a therapist because you need to, because you're busy with your career or whatever, then by all means do that. But, and it's not either or, but you now have more choice. You don't have to be scaremongered or you know, worried that you're a bad parent if you don't do all these expensive therapies because there's an awful lot of it you can really, really, really can do yourself once you understand kinesthetic learning, basically. So, so tell us about your foundation, because obviously that's something you do. You're involved in the Horse Boy Foundation, when you can go to the website, horseboyfoundation.org, um, because you're doing a lot with other children. And, yes. uh, yeah, so very specifically, I, I want, you know, we want to hear about that. Absolutely. Well, yeah. our foundation website is horseboyfoundation.org, and people can look on there and see what we do. At our, at our main center in Texas, where I live, um, all our services are completely free. Um, I just did not want to be another person screwing money out of, you know, hard-pressed autism families. So if you're with a hundred, if you live within 150 miles of our center and you come to us, our services are free. And then we have a lot of satellite centers um, around that we fund and give grants to. That's the foundation. For parents that want to know what they can do right now, like if you're a parent listening and you want to know, how do I do these kinesthetic learning techniques? How do I get my kid's brain going like this? Go to this website. It's called kidsmustmove.com. And we explain what movement method is there. You can download an easy and cheap um, uh, one-day course that you do online, and you're sort of good to go. And we're around, you can, you can then consult with us by email, etc. if you run into difficulties or you want to know more or go deeper into it. But if you go to kidsmustmove.com and then all the science, you know, we have um, all the uh, relevant papers, etc., etc., collated on that site. So if you want to see what the research is backing this up, um, you can download that as well. Um, but so yes, those are, those are the websites. Alcohol. 
I also want you to tell us about your son because now, you know, he was diagnosed quite a while ago. Now, yeah. how old is he now and he's how now is he 14. doing? Yeah. 14. Um, and he's upstairs actually right now as I, as I talk. And he said, oh, Dad, you know, I, I, I shouldn't come down because you're doing this interview. Um, Rowan is amazing. Rowan has his own web-based television show now called EndangerousSafaris.com. If you write dangerous, put an E-N on the front, and then add the word safaris, endangered safaris, you'll see he does all these vignettes. We go around the world with him now, um, tracking animals that are both endangered and dangerous, and he, he's making pieces about ecology. Um, and they're full of fun and toilet humor and, and really funny. They last about a minute to three minutes. Go check them out. Um, he also has a, a, a job at a local road construction <laughs> company because he's also obsessed with trucks as well as animals. Um, and he's an intern there. Um, he's a, safe, a site safety inspector. He goes and checks that everything, all the protocols are being followed. And he has to submit a report, part of which is in Spanish. And this was the kid who couldn't talk, who was, you know, incontinent, who was tantruming all the time. Um, so that's where he is now. So that's a, uh, obviously a success, success story um, and kind of an inspiration for other parents, obviously, who have uh, children who are diagnosed with autism. Um, we only have like a couple minutes left. Mm. So uh, where do we want to go from here? I mean, I know that the you, you, where you are in Texas, um, you do you have a camp for the children you have, we have different we run camps every 6 weeks or so um we we also have all these satellite centers around the USA so if people contact us through the foundation the email links are there we can help you try to find somebody who um is is a practitioner locally either with the horses or without but i think really what we should be doing is training parents how to be their own practitioners um, also, the book, The Long Ride Home, um, which tells the story not just of the journeys, but also how we evolved these methods. Um, that book, all of the proceeds from that book go to give free services to um, autism families. So if people would like that book, they can obviously go to Amazon and get it. Um, we would like them to go to our own website because that way we know the money goes directly to the foundation. And that's thelongridehomebook.com, thelongridehomebook.com. If, if people would order from there, they are directly supporting the work. Um, so that and kidsmustmove.com, thelongridehomebook.com and kidsmustmove.com, I think are the two things that will give parents the sort of most immediate orientation about, well, what do I do now if I'm in this position? Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you today, and I really thank you so much for being on the show, and that we've been talking to author and human rights activist Rupert Isaacson. I'll mention the book one more time, The Long Ride Home, The Extraordinary Journey of Healing that Changed a Child's Life. Um, once again, we're going, to take a, we're going to say goodbye. Thank you, Rupert. Thank you so um, much for having me. You, you have been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.